Computer Center. This is Inside Politics with Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford. All right. Yes. Intro so nice, we had to do it twice. A uh, lot to talk about this week. Holy crap, what a week in politics. A uh, real pleasure to welcome to the program to dive into it all. Matter of fact, we're going to go the full hour with the panel this week. A uh, real pleasure to welcome Global BC's Keith Baldry and the Vancouver Suns' Vaughn Palmer. Welcome, guys. Morning, Shane. Good morning. Wow, what a week, huh? Mm, <laughs> yes. Yeah, we've been having real problems staying awake this week. Yeah. Shane. No news. <laughs> okay. o'clock. Let's, uh, let's get into this. Uh, we'll start with the McLaughlin report. Uh, which uh, took a deep dive into the uh, the spending fiasco at the legislature, uh, was going to provide us with finally some clarity in what's going on with Craig James and Gary Lenz. There's uh, 15 counts or so of misconduct all told. Gary Lenz looks to more or less be in the clear, albeit uh, an ongoing RCMP investigation. Not so much for Craig James. Uh, I guess first and foremost here, Keith, uh, what did you think of the report and, and some of the fallout we've seen so far from it? Oh, I thought it was a very comprehensive report. It's a, a, a neutral arbiter here, it's unlike the speaker or anyone else. Uh, and she lets a lot of parties have it. Um, it comes down hard, I think, maybe not hard, but certainly critical of the Legislative Assembly Management Committee, which is composed of the three House leaders and a couple other MLAs and the speaker for not doing their job in, in supervising this place and keeping control of things. Noting they only met once in a year. Uh, this, this is, you know, this is a, the committee that's supposed to be overseeing things. It hardly ever meets. Thankfully, that has changed. It's meeting more regularly now. There's a lot of changes underway that will prevent some of these abuses from occurring in the future, I think. Uh, makes it very clear that uh, Craig James was, uh, in her view, was guilty of misconduct, particularly, I think, on concocting these benefit schemes for oh, himself. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the wood splitter gets all the all the fun attention, but maybe that was kind of minor compared to some of the other stuff. Uh, I think the benefit schemes were the most egregious forms of misconduct. Uh, Gary Lands gets a pass on everything, um, despite what the speaker uh, found. And Vaughn actually told a lot, first one to total up, that uh, the speaker made 15 allegations against these two men, and only four of them were substantiated by Beverly McLaughlin. So the speaker doesn't come out looking very well here at all. Uh, and she questions his judgment in that he basically abdicated his duties as speaker in favor of becoming a self-appointed police investigator. So not a lot of people come out looking good in this report, and uh, I think that's that's a, a proper result. Vaughn, Gary Lenz had a press conference uh, uh, where he kind of responded, and you could almost sense the relief on his side. Uh, Craig James' response was to issue a release, and after uh, those egregious spending violations, luggage, wood splitter, hundreds of thousands of dollars in all these benefits, the alcohol, the truckload of alcohol, that he, uh, he cast himself as uh, being vilified, sick of the whole thing. He's retiring early. Well, the James stuff, you know, he complained that his side wasn't heard. Uh, you read that report, Beverly McLaughlin listened to him, heard him, and again and again she said, I don't accept his evidence. I, I reject his arguments. In fact, at one point, she said Craig James' argument bordered on the nonsensical. Yeah. And that was his excuse for taking the wood splitter to his house and leaving it there and using it. So uh, I thought, you know, she, it's a fair report because she does uh, uh, give him the benefit of the doubt where the evidence isn't clear on some matters. Um, as for Lenz, I mean, he's kind of collateral damage in this thing, right? I mean, there's seven accusations against him. He's cleared on all of them. 
but he remains in suspension because the matter is in the hands of the police and the legislature didn't have any choice on that one. Um, the other thing, and I agree with what Keith said, the other thing that I think is pretty disturbing is McLaughlin faults the legislature itself, the legislative assembly, for lack of controls, for blurred lines of authority, for this committee that's supposed to be in charge of managing everything that never meets. And, you know, we will recall that eight years ago, the then Auditor General of British Columbia, John Doyle, faulted the Assembly for the same kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, they've made some changes, but eight years later, they still haven't cleaned up their act. And if you ask yourself, why did they decide to let Craig James go quietly? I think they had to admit that he took advantage of a system they'd created and they hadn't policed, and that is a pretty embarrassing indictment of the Legislative Assembly of British Columbia. Now, Keith, uh, Craig James got what they're calling a non-financial settlement. Uh, any idea what that means? I assume part of it is, like, we're, we're not going to launch any legal action either way. Well, I, I, both sides have agreed not to have any legal action, and Craig James will retain his pension and, uh, and such as, as are allowed under the basic employment law, but he's not getting a cash payout. One can argue he basically got uh, six months' pay uh, while he sits at home right. awaiting the adjudication of Ms. McLaughlin. But, no, he gets uh, no cash payout. He simply retires with his pension. He can qualify for his pension right now. Uh, so that's that with him. I don't think uh, there's going to be any more said between those two. What, what's an open question, as Vaughn says, is Gary Lenz awaits his fate uh, as a result of this police investigation. Uh, it's hard to see how a special prosecutor would come to a different conclusion uh, regarding Lenz's actions or behavior than the chief, former chief justice of the Supreme Court of Canada. I mean, she's applied her legal lens to this thing, yeah. and she's concluded not only I mean, there's no criminality, but there's not even any misconduct. So I would, I would think it was very interesting, Shane, getting the reaction of the people who actually work at the legislature yesterday. Everybody was volunteering their opinion. And we're not talking about cabinet ministers or political staff. I'm talking about security guards, dining room people, tour guides, the people, the infrastructure of the legislature, all of whom felt slighted here at, at how this whole thing has been handled. And I think most people read it the, the same way, that Craig James was the one who was sort of the guilty party, and that Gary Lenz was sort of caught up in this in an unfair way. And uh, I think a number of people expect him to return to work. But having if that happens, it's going to be very awkward around here uh, to have a sergeant-at-arms uh, working in the same hallway as a speaker who threw him under the bus. And even though Gary Lenz says he's a forgiving sort, it's going to be, I think, a, an awkward, tense moment uh, if and when he comes back to work. All right, before we dive into the speaker's aspect of all this, a uh, quick question to you, Vaughn. I mean, after all of this, after all these years, multiple warnings and then months of this most recent fiasco and the McLaughlin report, can we expect the rules to finally be tightened up? Yes. Yeah, and, uh, you know, they did table in the House yesterday a bunch of things that have already happened, prompted by these investigations, uh, under the direction of Kate Ryan Lloyd, who is the acting clerk of the legislature, and who I think has risen to the occasion here in fine fashion. The, the job of clerk of the legislature is vacant right now because Craig James is retired, and I sincerely hope she's at the top of the list of people that get considered for the permanent appointment because yeah. you consider the stresses and pressures around here 
it's it's one of the most stressful and pressured times we've had and she's gone through it and handled herself very very well yeah she's done a great job uh, let's talk about Daryl Plekis. Uh, he was a uh, key role in this whole thing, uh, really cast himself as the investigator along with his aide-de-camp, uh, Alan Mullen. Uh, we had that speech last week, the crazy bananas speech to civic politicians where uh, he talked in an overt way about this report. Uh, Vaughn, you speculated, oh, he may have told us what's in it. Uh, he seemed to hint at some kind of vindication. Oh, you're going to love what you see next week. Uh, however, uh, McLaughlin really didn't have a lot of kind things to say about Mr. Plekis, essentially saying he acted too much like a criminal prosecutor building a criminal investigation instead of dealing with the administrative rules that were under his purview. Keith, uh, uh, will there be any change to the speaker? I mean, uh, well, he's answer. he's bulletproof. There's nothing they can do to him. I do think, I think Daryl Plekis's demeanor has changed a bit since the fallout that uh, resulted from that weird speech he gave, where he praised Hell's Angels and the mafia and organized crime and suggested his question period was the reason why young people wanted a dictatorship. He knows the MLAs don't have a high opinion of him, and that he has to change his his tone. And his demeanor. I think. Um, I think. Uh, I think this report cuts him down a little, bit, uh, quite a bit, in the eyes of uh, of the members of the House. So she, he, McLaughlin was quite critical of his, his conduct. And it's interesting, Shane. Again, back to the people who work at the legislature. The, there is a unionized a union certification drive underway at the legislature for the first time in decades. Oh. Part of that is because there's an NDP government. But talking to some of the people who are thinking of a union uh, certification. Uh, it's because they fear for their jobs because of the way the speakers handled this thing with his, his special aide, Alan Mullen. And uh, they think there's these two are sort of running rogue through the legislature and their jobs are threatened. And so they're looking in for the first time at forming the union. That speaks volumes of the atmosphere around this place. Vaughn, on, on Mr. Mullen, I mean, he, uh, he was a big face in this thing. Not a lot of what he said came to fruition. Uh, but have we heard the last of sort of the Plekis Mullen union in this or no? Well, as I said, I think Keith is right that uh, uh, maybe maybe it's just wishful thinking that a lower key approach would be would be better. Um, I don't think there's an awful lot of. Uh, uh, I mean, the one thing you can say about Plekis is if he hadn't waded into this thing, uh, however however he handled it, however he did it, if he hadn't waded into this thing, um, I don't think we would have seen anybody putting a stop to it because the assembly had been allowing this kind of thing to go along for a while. Uh, we can't uh, tattle up the uh, total up the entire bill for everything till the end of this. Uh, Mike Farmworth was asked yesterday about the uh, cost of the McLaughlin report, and he said it's worth every penny, but he couldn't tell us how many pennies it was going to cost. Mm -hmm. And of course, you've still got the forensic audit going on with the auditor general. You've still got uh, police and two special prosecutors. Um, until we get all that, I guess we won't know how much this whole thing cost and how much of it came true, or at least was borne out. But I guess the one thing you have to say going in, and I think the public would be inclined to say this, is, well, however he did it, at least he put an end to it, and that in itself is something that people should be grateful for. Really quickly, do we know where the RCMP investigation or the forensic audit is at in a timeline perspective yet or no? You, you, ne you never know where an RCMP yeah. investigation is. It's just they never provide any clues or heads up, so it is what it is. I expect it's going to continue for some time. Okay. Uh, let's take a quick break here on Inside Politics. We'll continue a busy week in political news with Keith and Vaughn right after this quick break. 
News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM, and RadioNL.com. Accountable to you for Kamloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. We're talking to Vaughn Palmer and Keith Baldry. Guys, Ginny Sims, who's the Minister of Citizen Services, uh, spent plenty of time uh, on the hot seat this week in question period. Uh, she had her hand slapped pretty good not that long ago for dodging around FOI laws, and apparently she's now facing uh, similar allegations about uh, different methodology, including social media accounts, uh, all leveled by a former staffer in order to get around Canadian freedom of information laws. Uh, Vaughn, what do you make of this whole thing? I mean, she's in charge of the FOI the system, as it were, and here we go. Yeah, she's not exactly the poster child for access to information and following the rules. The other problem she's got, there's actually two problems here. It turns out that uh, her office wrote a bunch of letters of recommendation for applicants from Pakistan who wanted visas to come to Canada, and when they were sent over to the local MP, who's a federal liberal, and MPs are the ones who field these applications, I guess, uh, pointed out that three of these people were on a security watch list. Oops. So Sims kind of backs off at that point, but asks how all this happened. Because if you read the letters, she testified these were fine people. She was prepared to vote for them, friends and everything. She says, oh, it was all a staff mistake, right? It was all my staff, and, you know, they've been told don't do it again and uh, all that stuff. But it's pretty embarrassing uh, to just see a minister who's, um, you know, as I say, these 10 letters went out from her office, and uh, it turns out that three of them were on the security watch list. She provided testimonials about these people. Yeah. Keith, uh, how much trouble is she in here? I mean, there are the, the former staffer in question here is lawyered up, and uh, the letter from that lawyer kind of instigated the whole thing, spread out by the B.C. Liberals. Is she genuinely in trouble or no? Well, I think more shoes have to drop before she's in trouble. Um, I don't think her colleagues are that impressed with her her behavior here. And I do find it very amusing that the NDP, which dined out in opposition, dined out for years on email issues involving liberal cabinet ministers. Uh, triple delete, and also relied on disgruntled ex-staffers as sources. Uh, now, the tables are turned. The Liberals are now gleefully feasting on ex-staffers, uh, disgruntled ex-staffers, providing them with information about emails. Uh, it's uh, it's a real what goes around comes around type of uh, I- issue here. But you know, the way the news cycle works is that, uh, you know, this this is sort of an issue for a day, quickly replaced, of course, by the money laundering uh, uh, review, (coughs) a public inquiry, then the um, McLaughlin report. The House is not sitting next week. The House comes back for one final week. Will the Liberals take another run at it? You know, 10 days from now, maybe, but I think other issues will uh, will probably come to the fore. And I think basically Ginny Sims got a break by the House not sitting next week and by two big day news days coming back to back that sort of punted that story out of the picture. Will there be more to it, though, as far as, a, as an investigation or anything like that, Vaughn, or no? Uh, well, it doesn't sound like the government is interested in taking this anywhere. We didn't even, there was an investigation. We discovered that during the week. This has kind of been uncovered in layers of an onion. But it turns out that Jeff Meggs, the Premier's Chief of Staff, has already investigated this and cleared her. Um, of course, the opposition's been asking for a copy of the report. Um, that is about as likely to materialize. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's pretty hard to imagine the, mem- the government ever releasing that. In fact, I can't even believe that it's a written report. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the opposition uh, had a few good days with it, but uh, it's very hard to keep these things alive unless there's a formal investigation, uh, public inquiry, uh, uh, chief justice of the Supreme Court of Canada. None of that is going to happen here. <laughs> uh, you mentioned uh, the lead sort of working in her favor, but what about the, number- the numbers game, Keith? I mean, uh, the numbers game kind of in the legislature puts the NDP in a tight bind for kind of punishing a minister. If it comes to that, we don't know if it's going to go there. But well, only it would only be a concern if you know you punish a minister and the minister leaves the caucus, and that's just not going to happen with Jenny Sims. Um, so it's uh, you know there'll be a cabinet shuffle one day. I would think before the next election, uh, but not right now. And at that time, John Horgan may revisit that issue, replacing her. Um, but I think we're a long way from that yet. I don't think this is this is um, something that's uh, it, it may have legs if we get more information. But as Vaughn says, Megs looked into it. As far as the premier's office is concerned, it's a it's a closed deal, and they're the ones who determine whether a cabinet minister, a person remains in cabinet or not. All right. Uh, let's. Uh, we got a whole slate of stuff to talk about. Uh, we're going to go uh, take a quick break here, get caught up to the news at the bottom of the hour on the other side. Holy smokes, a public inquiry into money laundering and the education negotiations have suddenly gone from civil to hitting a wall. We'll dive into all that with Keith and Vaughn right after this. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics. Once again, Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning. Welcome back. Well, we talked a lot about this on this show over the last few weeks, about whether or not we should have a public inquiry into allegations of massive amounts of money laundering in this province. That made official earlier this week by Premier John Horgan. Uh, the uh, BC Supreme Court Justice Austin Cullen will chair this official commission of inquiry looking to these money laundering allegations. Uh, so, Keith, uh, we talked a lot about the pitfalls, the cost, the, the the lawyers, all of that kind of stuff. We're doing this thing. Uh, you've seen how it's formed. Uh, are you concerned at all about uh, about some of the stuff we talked about coming to fruition now or no? Well, yeah, I am. I'm, I'm not. Uh, I'm t- still taking the Missouri approach. Show me uh, that it's going to work. I mean, Austin Cullen's a good choice. He's highly regarded. And he's been a Crown Counsel. He's been a, a, a senior uh, Supreme Court Justice. He used to run the Criminal Justice Branch here in the Attorney General's Ministry. He's been given wide powers. The terms of reference are good. They're very broad. He can go where he wants to go. Interesting, though, uh, David Eby, one of the first questions was, what about the feds? Are they going to cooperate? Eby says he has assurances from Bill Blair that they will cooperate, but, you know, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that's going to happen. Bill Blair is in no position to force RCMP or FinTrack or immigration officials to testify if they're subpoenaed uh, at a provincial inquiry. And I maintain that uh, given the the experience and precedence we've seen with other public inquiries regarding federal employees uh, refusing to talk to the provincial inquiry, I don't see any reason that that's necessarily going to happen in this case. But, you know, having said that, that's one potential downside. Colin will be able to put other people on the stand who are going to name names, one thinks, or, or have anecdotal information that reveals some of the stuff that's been re- been reported from the whistleblowers. Uh, some of them will take the stage and uh, take the stand and they will point fingers and it'll be interesting if the fingers are pointed at people with high political profiles, whether it's cabinet ministers or senior government officials or people from the lottery corp or from, from the various casinos and, and real estate sector. So I, 
think it's definitely going to uh, uh, reveal some information that we don't already know, and it is going to name some names that have not been named yet. Will it be as broad as everybody hopes it be? I don't. I'm still uh, skeptical that you're going to be able yeah. to get a lot of the federal authorities on the stand here. But you know, even without them, I think it's going to be very interesting. Vaughn, I talked to Wally Opal, uh, who chaired, of course, the Picton Inquiry, so he's no strangers to running one of these things. Uh, he told me that he sees two challenges ahead for this. One is keeping the inquiry on track. He says, okay, an extension or two, that's sort of normal. His uh, called for two, but you don't want to go on and on because then you lose credibility. The other is his concern that it's very rare for an inquiry to run alongside any potential police investigation. Usually they happen well after the fact, and his concern is that, uh, that it might do that and then might impact those existing police investigations well those are legitimate concerns uh, how this thing unfolds there's a lot of question marks Keith mentioned the federal cooperation issue here's another one that he keeps right it's a very very broad uh, mandate uh, looking at I think a dozen sectors of the economy and how money laundering invaded them developed them went through them expanded and who knew about it and what did they do about it and who were the perpetrators of all this and if you find anything that merits criminal investigation you turn that over to the police and you're right if it goes to the police then you got to leave that alone because there's a police investigation so uh, it's very, very broad and potentially very far-reaching, and just what they've asked them to track down is going to be a lot of work. So the question I asked at the press conference, and I had to ask it three times to get the answer, was um, the government has imposed a political timetable on this inquiry. The, the final report is due two years from now, just in time for the next provincial election. So the question I asked was, is the commissioner bound by that timetable? Well, I was told it's in the terms of reference. Yes, but is he bound by it? Well, it's in the terms of reference. But the answer is finally, no, he's not bound by it. The commissioner is independent. And as Opal says, you can ask for an extension if you're not getting the answers, if there's simply too much work to do and not enough time to get it done. So my thought is, uh, yeah, I, I, the one thing I expect will happen is they'll be asking for an extension. I'll just say that the last time the NDP ordered a public inquiry in this province, it was the bingo one, and that commission needed six extensions, all granted, and was still going after five years, and the Liberals came in, and they finally shut it down. Keith, yeah, I, you know, Vaughn mentioned the 12 sectors he's going to look at. I think it's roughly the number. Yeah. Um, just on paper, Shane, that, that just looks like a massive amount of work. I yeah. mean, how do you how do you really delve into the real estate sector in a short time frame? And then, and then you've got uh, casinos on top of that and horse racing and luxury goods and financial institutions and lending institutions and other regulatory bodies. It's a Lawyering, massive amount of work. Accounting. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I don't see it being completed before the next election. So here's here's a question: Is the biggest enemy of this public inquiry expectation because a lot of people clamored mm -hmm. for it? There was yep. a real thirst out there, and I note uh, the reaction I saw at least play out uh, on social media immediately after the news broke was, "Oh, here we go. We're going to get justice. We're going to get vindication." Yeah. Uh, there's the political operatives. Oh, we're going to expose BC Liberal corruption. There's some really lofty expectations around this thing, and I question, no matter what the result is, I don't think 
that's going to meet some of those lofty expectations. Oh, I think you put your finger on on it, uh, Shane, because you're right. Uh, you just you, again, social media reaction is people are brain for blood. Um, uh, they want vengeance. They want heads to roll. Public inquiries don't lay charges. They can lead to um, further investigations by the crown or police, but people cannot take the stand and incriminate themselves. No person can be uh, any evidence that comes out in a public inquiry. Uh, coming forth from, from one person cannot be used against that person in a subsequent criminal proceeding. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of checks and balances on this thing. And uh, I think people are mistaken that they think somehow, you know, a, a liberal cabinet minister is going to get, uh, you know, going to jail or something like this or some lottery official or, or such. I think it's going to be an eye-opening exercise in many ways, but it is not going to be the vengeance-seeking exercise that p some people are thinking. And I think expectations are unreasonably high, and I think they're those expectations are going to be dashed and people are going to be disappointed at the end of it. The other thing that struck me about the press conference, uh, the Premier was asked outright, okay, uh, what's the cost of this thing going to be? Are you concerned about the cost? Uh, he essentially said, well, the cost will be what it will be. We'll have to see where it goes. Vaughn, was that sort of smart as opposed to saying, well, it's going to cost X amount and then having to play defense for two years? Well, he didn't want to give us a number because, <laughs> again, the record of these things is they go over budget. Uh, unfortunately for the Premier's attempt to avoid us having a number at the beginning, David Eby has already told uh, a meeting uh, on April the 23rd that the price range was $10 million to $15 million. So in the absence of any other numbers, that's going to be the starting point uh, for reporting on this if they get it Double done it. for $15 million and in two years. Uh, but the Premier tried to keep it uh, from generating a storyline about going over budget, but unfortunately David Eby had already given us a number. Uh, but that said, I mean, there's going to be people who, who talk about the cost and go, well, listen, you billions of dollars have been laundered in this province. What's $100 million on an inquiry? I mean, even Wally Opal, when I asked him that question, said, hey, can you put a price tag on justice? He's... Yeah, no, I think, I think this, but we've we've heard uh, doubt that it's actually going to do that. I think you're going to get a lot of bureaucracy here. There are a bunch of agencies in charge of this, federal and provincial, and I think we will see world-class displays of buck passing <laughs> as all the different officials take the stand and say, "Oh, you know, I yeah, I passed that on to so and so. I don't know what they did with it. You better ask them." Right? I mean, yeah. that's sort of what happened with the bingo inquiry was there was an awful lot of buck passing, and it was still going on after five years. Uh, I wouldn't bet on that being avoided this time. Yeah, the, the, the bad scenario for the NDP, and I have talked to one reason why I think there was a delay in calling this. There was there is some reluctance and fear among some members of that cabinet that. The worst case scenario is on the eve of the next election, this inquiry is still going on, there's not a lot to show for it, and the bills are starting to mount, and suddenly you've got a $20 million exercise and not a lot to show for it. That's the worst case scenario for the NDP, and that could come back to bite them come the next election. But, you know, having said all this, I think there's all rightful doubts and, and concerns about how this thing's going to work, but uh, Austin Cullinan, I think for in the short term, it's going to be interesting how he gets this thing off the ground and what what he, he sort of discovers in his first few uh, kicks at the can. But it's going gonna, it's gonna to take some time to get this going, Shane. He has to get a, assemble a staff. He has to literally find office space. He has to find a crackerjack lead council. And then he's going to come up with a strategic plan, how he actually is going to tackle all these sectors and in what sequence is he going to do it. And a lot of people are, are interviewed beforehand, before they take the stand, to find out exactly what information they have available to them. So I don't think we're going to see, or, or, uh, see any public hearings in this thing, at least until the fall, if not next spring.
Uh, just one final note on this topic before we move on. Uh, I know Bloomberg has put out an interesting article, and they're casting mm -hmm. some doubt on the numbers that have been thrown yep. out, the, the amount of dollars being laundered, the impact on the real estate market. And I'm seeing some people... Uh, getting some traction with that article. People who in the past have said, oh, listen, the NDP are using money laundering uh, the way the Liberals are using liquor reform to kind of distract or lay over some political woes, that kind of thing. Even Rich Coleman is reposting this thing with a vengeance. Uh, what, do, what do we think of that, Vaughn? Well, uh, they, we were warned right off the top of that press conference when they released the uh, the expert panel and the German report uh, two weeks ago that these numbers were, were estimates. They claim they were conservative, but if you dig into them, there's a methodology there that is subject to debate. Alberta has disputed the number that's attributed to them for money laundering. Uh, Bloomberg has. There have been some uh, people in B.C. disputing it. Um, I guess at the end of the day, you'd say, well, even if it's only a billion dollars, not seven, that's a big deal, and we should be looking into it, and I don't think people would argue with that, but uh, the numbers are very, very iffy. Final word to you, Keith. Yeah, no, I think you got to be skeptical of the number, but uh, and, and that was apparent right off the bat in the news conference. They, what they did is they extrapolated big time, but using using estimates that have been used in other countries in terms of using the formula. I think they used one that was in the Netherlands uh, to extrapolate, uh, looking at a number of transactions and then sort of uh, multiplying from there. But Vaughn's right. Whether it's seven billion or a billion, I mean, I think that's still a lot of money, and it's it's very clear there is money laundering going on in British Columbia and across Canada. Uh, criminals are getting much more sophisticated. And it's not like it's a B.C. problem, even though we have the so-called Vancouver model. Um, it's, a, it's a worldwide problem, and we're not, we're not immune to it. So, again, whether it's $7 billion, $5 billion, $4 billion, I don't think that really matters as much as the fact that it's going on and people want to stop to it. All right. Paging all teachers, we're going to take a quick break. On the other side, uh, the education dispute has flared up again. We'll talk about that with Keith and Vaughn right after this. Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. You're listening to Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. Welcome back. We're talking to Von Palmer and Keith Baldry. Well, with the NDP government, it was supposed to be a new day dawning for contract talks with BC's teachers, and all of a sudden, it's the same old headlines. Uh, guys, uh, the class size and composition, the big hurdle here. I talked to Glenn Hansman on one side, Alan Chell on the other for BCPC. Uh, and it looks like, as far as class size and composition, the stumbling block breaks down as I see it like this. Hansman says, yes, it is open for negotiation, but he told me flat out they cannot take away what the court has awarded. So from the BCTF perspective, there appears to be a floor. On the BCPC side, Alan Chell says, listen, we're bargaining. The whole thing's wide open. I've always assumed it's open. We can bargain and negotiate every aspect of class size and composition. Keith, how much trouble are we in? Oh, I think we're in a, a big heap of trouble. <laughs> I've talked to Hansman and to the school trustee side and the ministry and the cabinet ministers. Uh, this is an intractable mess. Uh, the language that's come back, the reason the Liberals took the language out and they did it illegally and wrongly is because the, it was unworkable. That It's so complex and so rigid, it, it uh, leads to unintended consequences. And in fact, even though the VCTF insists this, is, this language is somehow sacrosanct and, and holy, they have launched last year uh, 200 days of arbitration in grievances over the language. And, costing $2.4 million. 
and more costs to come. And that's just last year, and it's going on this year as well. So uh, despite the evidence, it seems to be, the language seems to be unworkable in many districts. The government's take is, the NDP's take is, look, we're trying to fix it. Uh, it doesn't mean we're, we're eliminating um, you know what the, the TF is looking for, but they need flexibility at the table. But the TF having won that court victory, the membership, you know, Hansman's actually the most reasonable person out there on this, but I can just tell on Twitter, uh, social media, there is a rigidity in the membership that nothing can change on this. And I think this is headed for disaster because uh, if there's no change, uh, the only the only leverage, the only thing here, Shane, may be that the, the BCTF has some leverage here. They can use the desperate need for the trustees and the school districts to change that language to sweeten the compensation pie for them. But they cannot exceed the mandate, as your interview with Alan Shell made clear. He made it clear with you they can't go beyond the yeah. negotiating mandate because all unions have agreed to this. And if, if the TF were to get more than the other unions, that would trigger all the Me Too clauses, and that would send Carol James' budget into deficit and would probably topple the credit rating, which it was just reaffirmed this week, and lead to all sorts of consequences. So, no, this is a, this is a very serious situation. Yeah, Vaughn, is that indeed where, where, I mean, at the end of the day, this is, is everything's always about money. Uh, the BCTF is viewing this as, oh, they're going to wipe out everything we fought so hard for in class size and composition. Alan Chell telling me, listen, the union's proposal on the table is going to cost us hundreds of millions of dollars. That's not only money we don't have, but as Keith referenced, it's also going to trigger all those Me Too clauses out there, which means ka-ching for the province. Uh, is that, that is a completely unworkable situation, I assume. Uh, yes, it is. And I mean, uh, the, even though the union chooses to portray this as bad old BCPC, this, the mandate here is coming from the cabinet room. Uh, it is coming ultimately from the from the NDP cabinet and Premier John Horgan. But the, the lead minister on this is not Rob Fleming, the education minister. It's, yeah. uh, it's Carol James, the finance minister. That's the first thing. The second thing is the problem. Uh, the second problem is the court uh, case. The, the teachers seem to think that the Supreme Court of Canada gave them their contract in perpetuity and gave them that language. What the court said was that unions are entitled to a fair process of collective bargaining. Fair, yes, but bargaining. There's no guaranteed outcomes here. Bargaining implies give and take. And the TF saying, oh, no, no, the courts gave us this language and nobody can ever change it unless we agree. Well, yes, they do have to agree, but there has to be bargaining. And uh, it's a frustration for the government. I don't feel sorry for the New Democrats on this one, Shane. They uh, took the position that the BCTF could do no wrong for years, courted them, got their votes, and now they're facing the reality that... Uh, they may have created a, a, a bit of a political monster for themselves. Yeah. If you're if you're a teacher listening to this, I would make financial plans to potentially be on strike next fall because the contract ends June 30th, uh, so it's the end of the school year. Uh, I, unless something dramatic happens, I think you're going to be in a situation where there will be a strike or a lockout come next, uh, more likely a strike, come the start of the next school year, and I think it could go on for some time. So if you're a teacher, uh, your leadership has always historically been way more um, you know, radical, I would say, than the membership, and if they don't bend on this, uh, you're going to be without a paycheck, I think, for some much of the fall. And will will a signal that we're headed down that path, guys, be uh, the calling in of a mediator? I think what like four of the last five rounds of contract bargaining has required a mediator here. Oh yeah, yeah. So will that it, be the first signal? Okay, we're we're going down a familiar path that the mediator gets called in. Vince Reddy's on the uh, mediator, on but they don't. Well. 
sorry, go ahead. Why are you going off first? Yes. Go ahead, a mediator, yes, but uh, I can't imagine. The, the union may ask for arbitration, but I can't imagine the government will ever agree to that either. Yeah, Keith? You, you lose control of the process. Yeah, no, it, it, it's a, it's actually a delicious irony to watch this because I've talked to Carol James and Rob Fleming about this, and they are getting quite irritated with the TF. And it's interesting, the TF has unleashed this campaign for ML, to pressure NDP MLAs uh, to go after P BCPC, which is the, the bargaining agency here. And again, trying to pretend that BCPC is some sort of liberal agency gone rogue has got nothing to do with the NDP. They're hesitant to criticize the NDP, but they are. Glenn Hansman now is. He's starting to call out Carol James on this. She's getting irritated by this. So suddenly the relationship between the TF and the NDP, which was never strong, yeah. is being frayed around the edges. And make no mistake, it's not BCPC driving the bus here. It's Carol James and the NDP cabinet that is in charge of these negotiations. Yeah. Yeah. And they've got to get their heads around that. Yeah, I asked Alan Shell that directly, whether his bargaining mandate had the blessing of Finance Minister Carol James. He told me, absolutely. Oh, yeah. And I think that's where the big, the dangerous warnings to me are, is all the social media activity from teachers over the last week and Glenn Hansman coming in at the end of it and saying, oh, well, look, they're bargaining like the B.C. Liberals. It's like it's 2014 out there. I mean, well, that's some tough language to throw at an NDP government. Yeah, no, but they're bargaining like they're bargaining. That's that's how bargaining works. And uh, the t one knock on the TF, and I've said it before, they don't know how to bargain. Uh, they don't have professional negotiators. They've got, like, you know, a socials teacher and a kindergarten teacher and a couple of other, you know, teachers who, who you know, give up teaching for a while to become negotiators, and they don't know how to negotiate. Other unions have professional negotiators. That's why they get a, a, a deal done for their members and why it always works for them. The nurses, the BCGU, QP, uh, all the public sector unions have essentially settled with the NDP except for the BCTF, and, again, it's going to be a very messy, messy uh, few weeks. Vaughn, in all of this, will there be political repercussions? As you mentioned, they've, they courted this vote, they won this vote, and now it looks like teachers are, are, are steaming mad again. Yeah, I wonder what they're going to do, though. They're not going to go and vote for the Liberals, so I suppose uh, be interesting to see what the Greens say about this if they get in that. I've already seen some suggestion on social media that, well, that's it for the NDP. We're going to have to go vote Green next time. So we're still some distance away from an election on this issue, uh, but it is, uh, I, you know, there is a certain amount of delicious irony in watching the New Democrats squirm on this one. All right, we only got about two minutes left, so just really quickly, I mean, and we've talked about all the trouble here and potential woes, and uh, here we go again. Is there any sign for hope? I mean, the two sides are sitting at the table. They're bargaining yesterday. I assume they're bargaining again today. They've got yep. dates till the end of June, and we got this summer to try and get something. I mean, is there a chance that other than the tough talk and uh, posturing in the media that we've seen in the last 24 hours that the two sides could take a deep breath and get back at this? Well, they're, they're still talking. That's good. I mean, the fact that this is all blown up in the media now is a sign. I think Alan Shell pointed out to you. It's a sign that things aren't going well when, every, when both sides race to the media to complain. Uh, but now they've made their points. Uh, you know, now they go back in. And we'll see if the if the TF can actually bargain. And uh, and ex I said to Glenn Hansman last night on Twitter, I, are you going to put another counter proposal in? And he won't really answer that yet. But that's how it works. The BCPC put their proposal in, which does change the contract language. Now will the TF put their counter proposal in, and then another counter proposal from BCPC? Uh, so if, if, the, if both sides agree to actually bargain, yeah, a deal can be reached. But I don't see the evidence there that bargaining is actually happening. Final word to you, Vaughn. Yeah, uh, but I hope they can work it out. You know, the New Democrats have had a great record of success on public sector bargaining. They've got pretty much all the other uh, unions, all the other groups on side. 
I think they really want to get the teachers as well, but uh, unfortunately this, I say, misinterpretation over what the Supreme Court of Canada actually did is a problem, and uh, there's a problem too in that Rob Fleming uh, said a little while ago, no concessions. Well, the government insists these aren't concessions, but the union sees them as just that. And by the way, guys, just some quick breaking news in federal politics. Looks like uh, the United States and Canada finally reached some kind of a deal to lift those contentious steel and aluminum tariffs. Uh, the Prime Minister is going to make it official in a few hours here, apparently. So there we go. Uh, Keith Vaughn, always Very a good. pleasure. All right. There we go. That's Keith Baldry from Global BC. Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Holy smokes, we have a lot to talk about today. Look forward to talking to them again on Inside Politics next week. Thank you for listening. Have a great long weekend. From CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Local news now.